Hello, welcome to Science Book Shambles, an extra book shambles that we're now doing on a weekly basis with science authors and also scientists, in addition to the usual weekly episode of Book Shambles. You can hear an extended version of this interview by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash book shambles. I know I always say forward slash, but that's because I'm 51 years old. Here's the conversation. Hello and welcome to Science Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. The news off the top, in case you have missed it in the last couple of weeks, that for 2020, Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People and Robin Ince and Brian Cox's Christmas Compendium of Reason, they are both cancelled for 2020. Uh, no big surprise, but obviously we're disappointed to have to let you all know that. But all is not lost there will be a Robin and Brian Christmas in July compendium of reason on July 1st at Hammersmith Apollo, if possible, if that's allowed to happen. All the tickets uh, that have been purchased for this year's December date will be valid for that July date as well. But what we're doing for this year, from midday on December 12th, we are doing a live 24-hour edition of Nine Lessons and Compendium Combined We'll be broadcasting live from King's Place for 24 hours. Robin will be hosting the entire thing. We'll have lots of special guests joining us, including Brian, of course, Chris Hadfield, Helen Sharman, Ben Goldacre, Josie Long, Rachel Paris, uh, Jocelyn Bell Burnell, all sorts of people. You can go to cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons to find out all about it. We'll be doing it for charity, as always, uh, all the the Christmas live shows, all the profits for those go to charity. So we've got a crowdfunder going for this event, crowdfunder.co.uk slash nine lessons. Uh, you can donate there, buy a virtual ticket uh, and get yourself lots of rewards for doing that as well. And all the profits, as always, will go to charities. This year we're supporting Doctors Without Borders and Mind for Mental Health. Turn to us and the King's Place Music Foundation. And also if you go to the King's Place website, uh, you can get some socially distanced tickets. There's very few of those available to come and watch the show, the broadcast live from King's Place, all in line with all the COVID uh, guidelines. So hopefully we'll be able to do that. So you can get tickets for that now. Robin, as I said, will be on stage the entire time. He'll have some in-person co-hosts. Uh, Steve Pretty, uh, our usual musical director, will be on stage as a one-man house band for the entire time as well. I'll be there. Melinda will be there lots of team shambles and then a huge screen where people will be uh, connecting to the show and joining us for the live stream so check that out on the king's place website for everything else remember with no live shows uh, patreon is what keeps us going at the cosmic shambles network no government grants for us so patreon.com slash cosmic shambles is where you can go to support what we do, get extended editions of the podcasts and lots of other goodies as well. Really, that is uh, what keeps us going and be able to make all these podcasts and interviews and documentaries and do the the 24-hour nine lessons and that sort of thing. Uh, without that, uh, we wouldn't be able to do it. It's that simple. So if you enjoy what you listen to on these podcasts and you can afford a, you know, as little as a pound a month, go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and help us out. If you can't uh, rate and review five stars on Apple podcasts as well, that, that is uh, very useful as well. On to this week's episode. Here is Robin joined by our very special guest, astronaut major Tim Peake. 
Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Today it's just Robin's Book Shambles. In fact, it's it's a science book shambles today uh, because we are going to be talking to, well, a man who on the cover of his book, it says soldier, pilot, parent, astronaut, though it could also say chorister, cocktail mixer, toilet digger, astronaut, uh, Tim Peake with his uh, his new book. It's, it's, it's a, a full-on autobiography. Uh, hello, Tim. Hello, Robin. Great to talk to you today. Now, this is interesting because... Most of this book is leading up to you becoming an astronaut. This is about your life, st- starting off from, from your first aeronautical disaster, and then we get all the way finally to to, to watching SpaceX. Was this... Um, well, I want to start off, actually, there's an interesting thing in your story and also in Helen Sharman's story as, as the two British astronauts, and something you both comment on, which is, unlike so many of the astronauts that you work with, you did not grow up with a dream of going into space. You know, if you read Chris Hadfield's book, if you read Scott Kelly's book, if you read, you know, or it's like, and, and just I saw the first moon landing, whatever it might be, and I was going to go into space. Now, for you, much like Helen, it almost was, oh, that looks like fun. I've just seen that advert there. It was, it was. And, you know, it's something I, I addressed in the book because I thought, you know, uh, you almost feel like you that's you're a fraud you feel like you shouldn't be you're surrounded by all these other astronauts who've been you know seven-year-old boys or girls looking up in into the night sky and thinking one day i'm going to travel out there uh and and i thought gosh you know should i should i have been like that is there something wrong with me but it was much more of an incremental process for me and I, that's what i wanted to chart i wanted to chart my journey as to how i did eventually become that person who desperately wanted to go into space and and i'm absolutely passionate about it but that wasn't always the case when i was young so does that mean your expectation of astronauts must be you know very different to a a, a lot of the other uh, iss people who who had been immersed in watching so you know again for their whole life so you must have as, as when you first as you said that that fear of imposter syndrome but that first time of walking through and going hang on a minute well, well what is an astronaut what are they like yeah and, and also, it seemed as, as if I was a spectator. It was something that we didn't do in the UK. And I'm sure Helen very much felt that. She was, the, you know, the first British astronaut. We watched Americans go into space. We watched Russians go into space. And in the later years, even Europeans, you know, but we weren't part of that program. So you felt like you're a spectator to then be able to have this opportunity it was very much later in life that i thought hang on a second you know i've, I've got those qualifications i've got those uh, uh operational skills that they're looking for let's go and give that a shot um and as soon as i you know later on became selected i i felt very comfortable straight away in that environment i didn't kind of have this imposter syndrome i was there with samantha and luca and toma and andy and alex and uh, we're all very very similar personalities and and so that that felt very comfortable but going through that process i didn't think i was going to be selected at all so do you think i mean what was there also a point because you obviously love flying so much i mean this comes everything in 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 this book says you know all of the different planes you talk about the helicopters you talk about i mean in some ways was there also the point going hang on a minute i think i've flown nearly everything that you can fly within earth's atmosphere i need to fly something that goes a little bit further now 
there, there was definitely and and I was kind of looking for that next step uh, and I think I, I always am I, I seem to run on a, a kind of two-year cycle I think that's probably the military that does it to you but I, I'd done my time as a test pilot uh, such a wonderful uh, tour as a military test pilot and then I was thinking okay now I'm going on to work for Augusta Westlands I'm going to be a, a civilian test pilot and do a, a you know a different type of test flying uh, production line aircraft um, and then the opportunity arose to go for the European Space Agency and I just thought well you know what what's a test pilot's dream is to go into space is to completely push the ultimate boundaries of what we're doing so that was a huge appeal when I saw the the online advert and along with eight and a half thousand other people thought I'd give it a shot. There's a uh, we'll, we'll come back to that because I shouldn't talk too much about this because I said the book much of the book most of the book is is, is about uh, the rest of your career and your childhood and the school days and and your first I mean when did your love of flying begin because you start the book chap, chapter one is your your first public aeronautical disaster I mean I think in fact really your your only public air as far as I know. I know. And I was I was crestfall. I really was because I love flying. I love the idea of flying. I wanted to be a pilot. I built myself this radio controlled model aircraft. I'd put so many hours of love and care and attention into this thing, you know, ironing over the, the plastic film over to the wings to make them the perfect shape. And it was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. And then I was so distraught to find out that I was a terrible, terrible pilot. I took it off, I flew it around Westbourne Common. I I did about two circuits, went for a loop, and the thing just crashed horribly behind the the, the kind of Cub Scout hut. Um, and uh, and I picked up the pieces and thought, right, well, I need to rebuild this and, and try harder. And, and and I did, and I did get better, but I was never really, truly very good at flying those radio-controlled aircraft. So it was a massive relief when I finally jumped into the real thing as a cadet and uh, took control of this glider and thought, actually, you know, I can do this. So that's it's interesting because the way you write about it in the book is very different, I think, to the way you told it there. I think in the book it sounds like it was just a, a, a failure uh, within the plane itself it was an engineering failure now we see the true honesty which obviously the editor went hang on a minute we can't have you failing at flying early on but now we discover it was your own ineptitude <laughs> I think it was a mixture of my own ineptitude uh, followed by the naivety of thinking that you should be able to do something straight away like all children do I see it in my two boys now you know they go they put on a set of skis and they just think they should be able to do it right away at the beginning so of course I thought I should be able to take this aircraft off and be able to fly it without any instruction guidance or help at all and, and that wasn't the case. Now you, you say in the book on various because like when you talk about your school years you talk about the fact that you were quite short and you said you know and I, and I was ginger as well so by having these things you immediately know that you're kind of you know there's the possibility in 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 terms of bullying stuff like that and do you feel that things like that did set up you going right well I'm just going to do stuff so before someone can start because certainly when you talk about operation rally as well and there's a bit where you go there's no point in saying things just get on and and create and I wondered how much you feel that that bit of you going right I need to make an impression now at school I need to do do something comes from just those kind of things as well psychologically I think I think you're right Robin I think it does uh, it's, it's something I probably haven't you know analyzed too much but but thinking about it what it does is, is it almost gives you this sense of well I've got nothing to lose you know so so why not go for it and I think when you're growing up 
um, if you're, it's all too easy for children to feel that they have got a lot to lose. They need to conform. They need to be in the cool gang. They've got to be re- wearing the right clothes or, or, you know, listening to the right music and doing the right thing and following the, the, the peer pressure that goes along with growing up. And I think if you're small and ginger and you, you, know, you come from the school of hard knocks, there's an element there that just says, oh, sod it. You know, I, I don't have to conform. I don't. I, I could just go out and, and forge my own way here and do my own things. It's almost liberating. I think it almost gives you the freedom to to just go out and, and be your own person from an early age. And it's something I've talked about with quite a few people who, who have done rare you know have had moments of, of rare moments of of, of exploration or or, or 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 creativity or scientific study which is also that need to somewhere along the line feel that you have permission to do this i mean the fact that you felt no i can do this so, so whether that was being a pilot whether that was going into space all of those things what do you feel in terms of when you were growing up your, your parents such was there something in there you thought yes i had enough to propel me enough to kind of move me into this world Absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, encouragement from from parents is everything when you're growing up as well, just just to give you the confidence to go and try stuff and to be able to do it. Um, And also, as you grow up, you know, role models as well in your teenage years, my role models switched to cadet leaders who were always pushing the boundaries of stretching us what we were capable of, you know, getting us promoted in the cadets, getting us flying aircraft, um, doing things before we felt that we could do it. And I think that's just so important, these building blocks that give you the confidence to go on. And and then, as you said, to propel you later in life to believe in yourself that you can actually achieve things and you do you seem to have i i I would say in some ways that there's that archetypal 70s uh childhood there action men air rifles and then going and gathering some stuff to try and make a big explosion you know all all of those kind of the adventures in curiosity seem to start at, at, at quite an early age it was it was very much like that and um you know and i think i I grew up outdoors a lot as well and my my whole life was geared around being outdoors and being with friends and um and the cadets just became this massive focal point for me um and as you said there it's kind of this archetypal 70s growing up and, and and chemistry sets and explosions and firing weapons on the ranges with the cadets it was all part of that all part of that experimentation um and as i mentioned in the book we had an awful lot of fun with it i'm amazed that we didn't um either of us get hospitalized in the process me and paul hunter that is the other friend that i was doing this with well that's i mean when you talk about richard Feynman, the 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 great physicist richard Feynman, he in fact a lot of books i've read by scientists at some point somewhere between the age of of eight and 17 there will be a point where they have to come up with an alibi for why half the house is on fire and you have this, I mean, an, an incredible, can you tell us a little bit about basically what happened when you blew up a, a bedroom? So, yeah, so Paul Hunt and I had, had found this book, this incredible book at a car boot sale, which is basically a U.S. Special Forces manual for how to make how to make improvised explosives, whether they're incendiary devices, detonators, etc., uh, for all the things that U.S. Special Forces might need to do with them. So we thought this was gold dust and uh, flicked through it and decided to experiment with a few of them. And it's amazing because it was all geared around being able to have the ingredients that you could get hold of really easily um and this stuff called hmtd i'm not even going to try and pronounce the proper chemical name um 
but it was it was hellishly explosive and we hadn't fully appreciated that it was about a three-day process to make including filtration and drying out the powder and and then we collected the powder scraped it very gently into plastic film containers and that's where we were storing this stuff um and unbeknown to us it just takes you know once it's dry uh, the slightest kind of jolt and the whole thing will go off and, and paul put this film container down on his bedside table and and literally the, the entire container went up in a massive fireball took out his posters on the bedroom wall scorched his, his roof his ceiling and the two of us were, were flung backwards onto his bedroom floor we were just laughing once we realized that we were, had not suffered any significant injuries and the house wasn't you know on fire still um what worried me at that point was i realized that my personal stash was actually back at my house under, under my bed and so I spent a very worrying trip nine miles going back home, hoping that the house wasn't going to blow up in my absence. And then, of course, poor Paul has a very singed Madonna poster, which I hope he still has. I hope 30 years on that singed Madonna poster above his bed, which caught fire. I hope that remains as, uh, as a warning to uh, all the children of the future. The um, uh, That bit of of risk because i think that's a very interesting i I mean you say as a test pilot you are very often test pilots are known for being serial pressers of buttons and in the book there are moments where you know sometimes practical jokes sometimes serious things are that point of learning that you have to you can't be too careful that, that getting that balance I mean how have you that process and I mean in fact the, the book starts off in the introduction with exactly that that story in terms of that moment of docking with ISS there were points where different astronauts might have made different decisions which would have not been necessarily the right decision so over over the last kind of 35 years how do you feel you've developed that ability to say we need to take this level of risk we do still need to do this if we're going to get out of this Yes, I, I mean it's it's a very difficult process. Uh, you're getting this incremental um, uh, risk appreciation of risk that enables you to be able to make those decisions. And and I do think it comes back to you know sweating the small stuff and nothing beating hard work because you can only make those decisions if it's based on factual knowledge of, of what you're doing. Um, uh, and so, for example, in the Sawyer simulator, you don't just need to know what's in the checklist. You need to know the nuts and bolts behind the systems. You need to be able to work out when you can go beyond the checklist and you can start digging down and, and finding ways out of things. And it all starts giving you options. And that was the same thing as a, a, a helicopter pilot. If I was flying the Apache, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be satisfied with the the checklist i'd want the uh manufacturer's manuals and then i wouldn't be satisfied with that i'd want to go to the factory and speak to the person who actually designed that piece of software and said well have you thought about this and a pilot might do this and press the buttons in this sequence and that could cause this problem um really really getting down to the nuts and bolts and so so what that does is it just gives you the the ability to generate options when things go wrong because you're empowered to go off piste and um play around a bit and press those buttons uh finding that finding that balance of which buttons you should press and which you shouldn't of course doesn't always work out well that that now you can explain what did you keep doing to the Sawyer simulator then because you know you say that you were again not merely the serial uh, button presser but also the one who they'd go right that needs another two hours to get that fixed because we just had tim peak in there so what give me that experience of being in the simulator what are the kind because that seems to be remarkable that you i mean you said everyone liked you because you gave 
gave them a long lunch break. They always put you in at about midday, didn't they? So they knew they'd get, you know, one till three for the sandwiches. Tim's coming along. He's going to break it. So, so put him in there. But it, again, it, it, I think it's about you know doing that in a safe environment. We we know the simulator is the place to learn. It's the place to make mistakes. So I I was sat there by myself on this two hour. Um, training sortie and my Russian instructor um, he knew that I liked to kind of you know explore the boundaries a little bit and so he was letting me sit in the commander seat flying the spacecraft doing everything and uh, oh, we had a, a bit of time to wait we were doing the rendezvous sequence for the space station so we're doing these engine burns as we increase our altitude up to the ISS and I was digging around in the guts of the the software I came across this button and and we discussed it the day before but I couldn't quite remember probably to do with my dodgy Russian I couldn't quite remember exactly what it did so I figured the best way to find out was to press it Um, and of course it completely reset all the navigation um information seconds before we were about to do this engine burn the engine burn went ahead and the Soyuz just tumbled and and the whole system crashed and took the whole simulator complex down with it unfortunately so uh yeah I was popular with some of the staff not so popular with the, the people who are coming along in the afternoon just on the health and safety side of it can I just check how many times do you have to do it right before they actually let you go into space uh, yeah, you have to do it consistently right in the last six months before flying. If you're making mistakes, then you, you know there's there's a big problem. So there, there comes a point where we just we do start have to getting it right. But the early days, we're expected to mess up, and that's where we learn. Now, I'm interested. That a lot of people have very uh, happy and interesting memories of Star City and and of their uh, experience kind of sharing to some extent as well the kind of the, the, the Russian philosophy and I'm, I'm interested if you got any sense uh, I was talking with someone the other day who was saying that they, they felt certainly in the past perhaps not so much now but the American space mission the sense of that has always been this is a technological achievement this is what we're going to do the, the, the Russian sense of going into space had something slightly more philosophical about it something more about the long term journey the population ultimately the, the Rusty Schweikart talks about you know the, the leaving of mother earth and, and and the journey of exploration to go and live in other places did you do you feel that have you found that in terms of having worked with so many different nationalities um, of astronauts you, yes I think you do it's, a, it's a def- definitely a different culture and it's it, in Star City it's a very human story that you feel that's being being painted here I mean Yuri Gagarin is is immortalized everywhere and uh, but everybody there is um, is very passionate I mean they're equally passionate in the US as well but they're extremely passionate about what they achieved um, in 1961 and um, and I think that, that you know everybody uh, in Russia in the there is there also have a huge sense of national pride still to this day whereas in the US I think that you know they went through that period of immense national pride and then actually space kind of fell away in, in the, the the larger population um, it's starting to pick up now again with the onset of SpaceX and returning human launches to uh, to the US soil but um, in Russia that's that's never been the case space is absolutely up there at the top of, of something that they have enormous amount of national pride about and you definitely feel that when you go through the gates of star city because that's i mean you know there's a yuri gagarin day and i and i when i you know first read about that i thought why don't we have more things like this you know in 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 the english-speaking world we seem to have i mean it's in when you talk about for instance the jeremy paxman interview i thought that was uh an, an archetypal 
British reaction to, uh, you know, a, a British person going into space, which was, why are we spending all this money? Isn't it all a waste of time? They just send people up. And, and it does feel that in some ways we have got totally, amongst the public sometimes, or, or certainly in the mass media, the wrong psychology for this, this beautiful possibility. Yes, yeah. I, I mean, it, it, it's definitely got to be questioned. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we should just spend huge amounts of money without actually thinking about what we're doing. But you've got to you've got to see the bigger picture about space exploration and the fact that it's this incredible feat of international collaboration and cooperation, pushing the boundaries of our scientific knowledge, uh, hugely benefiting people back here on Earth anyway, with all the science and the research that we're doing. And in addition to that, um, it's nothing like the amount of money that people think about, because everybody just thinks back to the Apollo era when they talk about human spaceflight, and they think that we're still spending the kind of vast sums of money, um, you know, 5% of GDP, but, uh, and it's not, it's not even a fraction of that these days so um, it's it's disappointing when people do just come up with those those archetypal responses but it's also an opportunity to enlighten and educate and explain about what we are doing that's what i thought was great i presume you went to the cosmonaut exhibition at the uh, the science museum which was what three or four years ago uh, and that was filled with all of these beautiful letters and messages from people across Russia. There was a lovely thing from a, uh, a Russian farm worker, and she said, send me into space. I'm happy to be the first person to be sent to space. I know I'll probably die there, but it doesn't matter. It seems to me such an important thing to do. And that was this beautiful imagination, this, this imagination beyond just the, you know, the, the narcissistic imagination. Yes, yeah, I think space has always been that, uh, that that opportunity for everybody to dream, to look out and to, you know, to imagine what else is out there and to think about the big questions and then reflect, you know, on on your own life. And uh, you mentioned Rusty Schweikart and I had the opportunity to chat to him uh, a couple of years ago about his spacewalk and obviously it had an enormous effect on him. Um, and, and to a, a degree that I, I felt the same thing being out there just, you know, having the opportunity to float and look down on earth as the sunset and uh, and just think about what humanity has achieved and and actually we are just the consciousness of the universe anyway so we are stardust and yet we've managed to organize ourselves to leave our home planet and to be able to look back and reflect and i think that's really important and i i, I think it's uh it's nice when other people uh see the passion that's behind it as well Do- do you think the the you know in, in the book you write about your period of time in the army you write about being in in Northern Ireland you write about being in in, in Bosnia, and I wondered if you feel that that did have an impact on that time. You know, thinking of the the great you know pale blue dot, think of all the bloodshed so that men could be the momentary masters for a fraction of a dot, and as you are flying repeatedly throughout the day over the world spotting different places we've seen from your book of photographs as well these been incredible ways of capturing different images of of the earth below and and the humans below do you think your experience being a soldier had some effect also on the psychological experience of looking back on the planet earth I think um, it, it does. I think all your experiences that you build up lead to to that moment. Um, and certainly, as a as a soldier, you you know you're you have a very structured way of thinking, and and, and you're taught that at Sandhurst. Uh, but you also get then to experience. Um, you know other elements uh, in, on operations that, that are less savoury as to what humans are, have done to each other, and um, 
and I think when you reflect back and you see Earth from space with with no borders, uh, no signs of human habitation even, but it's a very peaceful, beautiful planet um, when seen from space. And, and it does enable you to reflect back onto, well, why is it that we can't collaborate better on this tiny single planet that we all live on we all share the same atmosphere we share the same resources uh we're in it together and you look the other direction and there's nothing for millions and millions and millions of miles uh and i i think that does kind of put it into perspective that we you know we need to take care of this pale blue dot and look after each other I was wondering when you wrote you you have to uh, why do you want to be an astronaut you have to 750 words which may well change the possibility of going to space or not and and you started your piece by saying furthering the knowledge and understanding of, of, of humankind and I was wondering that the young man would you when you were a young soldier, do you think you would have had that perspective? Because the way that you write about when, you, when you're sat there, you think, what do I, why do I want to go into space? It does feel like that's, that's a, a different human to the one that we meet earlier on and in the early 90s and stuff like that. Practical Joker, having fun, you know, there's, there's you know, lots of adventures to be had. But there seems to be a point where there's a, a kind of, you found a, a new depth. Yes, and I think that happens to everybody. When you're young, you're, you know, you're going out into the world. You're you're building up your own skill sets. You're exploring, experimenting, uh, and still really finding yourself. Um, and also, there's an element of, of having a huge amount of fun as well, whether you're at university or whether you're, you know, young adult in your first couple of jobs. Um, but then you start giving back uh, once you've accumulated this uh, slightly higher level of knowledge and experience. I think you start giving back um, as, you know, as a test pilot very much. So it was all that was all to me about making things safer, making things more effective, being part of a team, being part of collaboration. Um, working in an international environment and it started to build I think really from those moments and then uh, as an astronaut um, it's taken to another order of magnitude in terms of what you're doing as part of this international team and and everybody working together you know for this incredible space station this incredible scientific laboratory and then seeing what's taking place up there and and how it is going to benefit people so I think it's a it's been a gradual iteration really up to that point. There's a lovely sense of camaraderie in the book as well amongst those people who who don't manage to get to be be astronauts. You you write about is it Remy Canton I, I I think who 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 unfortunately doesn't get through to the next round and immediately says to you here have all of the the preparation notes for the interviews that I I was going to do. That's a that that is a very you know that's a magnanimous thing. You don't kind of see that in stand up comedy. No one says I didn't manage to get on live at the Apollo. Here's my set. Is my gig, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, Remy was a, a wonderful, wonderful guy. I still keep keep in touch, and and that's true of of you know everybody. I think who who made it into that uh, that part of the selection process. The, I mean, I'm not to say there wasn't a competitive element in the early stages. Of course, there was, and people are eyeing each other and thinking, well, who's got the edge here? And when you're whittling it down, but when we got to that final group of of about fifty. Uh, candidates and we've all passed the tests up until then it's all down to the medical and the interviews we were genuinely just wishing everybody the best um, we we knew that it was going to come down to a lot of luck in the medical process we just either are going to pass it or not um, and so you know when Remy didn't get through that I think he just he wished us all well and I was just extremely grateful that he said look I, I've got you know uh, some notes here that I've made from his perspective was from working with the French Space Agency so he 
he had almost an inside knowledge of, of certain elements of how things worked, which I wasn't privy to coming from a, a British military background. And I think he appreciated that. And so he said, hey, Tim, you know, take a look at these notes, which I'll be forever, forever grateful to. That's great. The uh, Just a couple of things. One thing I wanted to ask, which was you, you kind of mentioned this slightly in the book, but that sense when you're on the I, I was thinking sometimes when I'm on tour, I wake up, I'm not sure where I am. And then I go, oh, brilliant. I'm in Brisbane. Did you still have those moments? Because we are, of course, lost in our dreams. Did you have mornings where you suddenly woke up and then you go, I'm, oh, I'm in space. I'm in space. I just... Uh, you do you do occasionally yeah if you've had a really good night's sleep um you, you kind of wake up and, uh, and it's pitch black in your crew quarters that's the one good thing is we have you know zero light in there um and uh, towards the end of my mission i was putting my um my air defenders in because they didn't the, the noise of the space station didn't bother me for the first three months but then it began to grate a little bit and so i would be sleeping with ear defenders in earplugs in uh, and a completely black environment so you'd wake up and, and it would take you perhaps a you know a couple of seconds to to appreciate where you were and then you think hey i'm floating okay yeah i'm in space and, and off you would go get your bacon sandwich cup of tea and get to work <laughs> and the final thing you you end the book talking about spacex launch uh what are your hopes having seen that successfully at the beginning of this this year um what are the changes you feel that that is going to bring in in terms of commercial space flight and and its possibilities Oh, I think it's 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 fantastic. It's going to be a very gradual process, but what we're doing is is you know handing over low Earth orbit effectively from control from national space agencies now over to commercial companies. So um, we're going to see more and more people flying to space. The cost of access to space is coming down. Um, you know reusability, sustainability of of some of these new systems and new technologies we're using is is wonderful. Um, and in addition to that, when we look at going on to the next steps to the moon, um, that's all part of a public-private partnership. So again, it's sharing technology, sharing resources, and doing it in a really sensible way, an incremental way that um, will enable us to get there safely, effectively, and efficiently. Cheers, Tim. Great talking to you. You too. Thanks very much, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Tim's book, Limitless, is out now. You can go and get yourself a copy of that. Check out everything we're doing with the 24-hour nine lessons show this year, cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons, and go to patreon.com slash cosmicshambles to support us making these shows and everything else. Have a great week. Stay safe, and we will see you with another new episode of Science Book Shambles and Book Shambles and Science Shambles soon. Bye. If you, some of these businesses, you know, they're committed to 100% take action to improve their health. These are some businesses. Uh, 1.85 billion million women have been empowered through initiatives developing skills. Now that's through some company in Unilever. I mean, they're, look at their um, remit. Uh, now you could say, well, maybe.